Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Welcome to another episode of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. This week is episode 6 of series 4 and we are delighted to be joined by another exciting guest. Before we get to that, I'd like to give a special mention to Sport Endorse who have come on board as sponsors for this series. They're an online sports sponsorship platform that connects athletes with companies all around the world. The Irish-owned online marketplace has over 4,000 athletes. For more information, be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Also, a special mention to the Shire Baron Cafe in Clarny, who are also supporting the podcast for this series. On episode 6 of series 4, I'm delighted to be joined by former Leitrim hurler and current Thomas Davis star, Zach Moretti. The Kurdish-born All-Ireland winning hurler was born in a refugee camp in Iraq before immigrating to Ireland at the age of 11. Zach's interest in hurling helped him integrate into life in Ireland. To find out more about Zach, be sure to check out the link in the show notes or the Sports Endorse website. There's no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi Zach, thanks for taking time out to come on Inside View Podcast. How are you keeping? Ah, not bad. You know, keeping busy and keeping well, that's the important thing, isn't it? It is, it is. I know the, the time difference. It's uh it's quite early there on, on Sunday morning, but uh thanks for for uh, agreeing to do this early and and uh coming on into your podcast as I said. Uh, I found your your story and your journey extremely interesting and uh when the opportunity came to to have you on I said let's let's go for it. Um you have a book out at the moment. How how's that going and is, is it all around the country? Yeah, it's going very well, and it's in nearly in every shop uh, around the country in Easton's, Dubray, all the book the books that one, you know, nearly at uh, every shop around the country you now has it, you know. So it's uh, it's flying at the minute. It's very happy the way it's going, you know. It's going, uh, it's going too well, as I say. It's going very well now, you know. Good, but uh, um, yeah. So there's no um. No complaint. Happy the way it's going, and people are supporting, which is which is an important thing, you know. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And what was, what was it like sitting down? You know, basically going back in your life and and actually writing it down on paper. What was that journey like for you? I um, I say it was um, it was a bit emotional, you know, happy, you know, a bit of both, a bit of both worlds, you know, because you kind of have to look back. What uh, what you went through, you know, and what what your parents and grandparents went through, you know, and and before that they had a great life, you know, and then you can go from having everything to nothing, you know, and then building life again, then you know, twenty odd years later, then you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely, so um, it must have been. Was it kind of, you know, did you do it with someone? Did you write it yourself, or, or did someone else? Um, Noel Kelly done it. Noel Kelly was the ghostwriter, and Noel Kelly, the hero, Philly McMahon's book. He's written five books, so um, 
he was uh, obviously he made it kind of a lot more easier for me. But um, obviously without him wouldn't have been got wouldn't have got done, you know. And then uh, and then Gills obviously they were the one that got onto me over an Instagram text, you know, the text me on Instagram, uh, you know, Sean Hayes Hayes the editor of Gills just send me an old message. Thought it was some girl just texting me because his page was on private, you know. <laughs> and then um, I said to me, you know the way sometimes these days you get a lot of, a lot of you know fake you know texts and messages and kind of stuff like that. So I, I kind of thought it was one of the lads, you know, taking the piss, you know. But anyway, when I kind of said, you know, I'll add him on, follow him on Instagram. Let's see, Lizzie, you know the way, just to find out, and make sure it was. It wasn't some fake profile anyway. Well, anyway, it was him, and we had a chat. And what do you I usually do when someone sends me an email or a text? I'd be like, Yeah, could you call me? You know, I give you your number, I'll call you, and then that's how you find out, you know. But, um, yeah, we just took it from there. Then, um, they want to do, you know, first I thought they want to do about hurling. I was like, That's a bit, you only get about probably two pages in, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were interested in the whole uh the life story of my parents going through you know all the wars they went through and and everything else on top of that you know and the rest of his history then and and we kind of just looked back it took took over eight months kind of just we meeting up every weekend or every every second week with Noel on a Saturday or could be a Sunday um uh, you know could be sometimes during the week. Um, we met up and then he came up with questions, and then I had to you know do a little bit more of my own research. But look, he was kind of my dad. My dad had a diary done over the past you know 30, 40 years. He had a diary done, and we still have the diary at home. A little, a little, uh, a little book there. Um, that he just written every time everything down that happened up. up over the 40 years, nearly 40 year old now at this stage, yeah, 40, 19, 1979, yeah, so it's nearly 40-odd years old, you know, and it kind of made it easier for me then to turn into the whole book, because I had the exact date when the war started, where they went, and such and such, and then obviously my mom kind of, when I give him the dates, my mom kind of remembered everything as well, which was interesting, you know, it made it easier for me, you know, what was it like reading back over that diary? Well, it was in, it's in Kurdish, so I had to get it kind of translated into... When we brought it, it was kind of translated into English for me, you know? And then the places they were, where they went, uh, where they had to go, where they fled. Kind of some of the stuff they went through, I didn't even know. Before we, we delve into, you know, the war and, and your, your family upbringing, your own upbringing, let's just kind of bring it to the to the present and I found it quite interesting how you actually got your name Zach that's not your your birth name what's it do you want to give us uh, an insight into that yeah so my real name is Zimnako a lot of people couldn't really pronounce it properly so it was called Smacko or Smacko or Zachary or um all sorts of kind of you know names um but um when i moved to well i was in Leeching to call me Zimnaco, you know um so it should be Zimnaco. and then in dublin it's kind of when i started what i call con dc rest in peace um so he uh he said okay i can't pronounce your name 
we just take the Z, the A, the K, you know, away from Zimnaco you know, or Zimnaco. I was like, it's too hard to shout across at you, you know. I was like, grand, yeah. Once you once you take the, you know, take the, you go Zachary or Zach, you know. I was like, okay, Zach, Zach is grand. Zachary's Kurdish as well, you know. Zach, you know, so. Uh, sometimes they call me Zaki anyway, some Kurdish people, Zaki or Zema or, you know, so, so we said we'd go for Zach anyway. And, and then every, after that, then everybody just started calling me Zach then, you know. A lot of people would have, would have heard you on the late, late, her, or the Tommy Tiernan show at, at different stages. Um, do you want to just give us a brief insight into where you grew up, you know, how you ended up there? Um, and just, uh, I think it's actually important as well, just to set the scene. The, the situation and political situation in in uh in Kurdistan if I'm pronouncing that right yeah um yeah so so my parents would have lived in a place called Kermansha province in Iran in Kurdistan of Iran and when the war when when Iraq occupied Iran they occupied the first Kurdistan part because we were closer to the border to Iraq, obviously. And at that time, Iraq had kind of full control of Kurdistan, of Iraq, that time in. And the Iranians had a full control of Kurdistan, of Iran. And then, obviously, after 1991, you know, uh, when the big revolutionary, Kurdish revolutionary, you know, Peshmergas rose up, um, 1992, in 1992, you know, I even remember this famous Kurdish singer, his name is Shivan Parwar, and he has, oh, there's over, it must be over 200, 200, 300,000 people on the streets with their guns in there, and he's tuning out the rebel songs, you know, about Kurdish first Americans. It's kind of a bit like, who ha up Kurdistan, <laughs> you know, rise up, you know. Uh, this is our enemy and our behind us, our enemies looking at us from left, right, you know, from all sorts of directions, you know, rise up and, you know, and after that kind of rise up since 1990, 1991, you know, they fought against the Iraqi regime, they got their own regional government and obviously then Europe, uh, NATO put a no-fly zone on Iraq because then before that, because in 1988, the chemical attack happened but anyway i'll go back to how the whole thing happened so it was from 1980 when the war started around 1980 october i think it was um so when that started then obviously me my parents only had a you know obviously they were farmers and she was in school he was studying and but um so all they had was their tractor so they jumped onto the, their tractor and they drove a route uh, so they drive through right across the mountains into because it was already invaded by Iraq. So there's only one way they were told to go. It's that way, you know, to the Iraqi side of Kurdistan. So they end up in the Kurdistan of Iraq. Then obviously, um, they spend close to probably for the first, you know, eighteen, nineteen months. They were kind of just up and down in different, different. Uh, they were living in tents. They were living in um. They were living in, um, yeah, gone from tents to, you know, so nine months there, three months there, four months. They were kind of just getting moved around because this was at the height of the war, you know, when it was a full tilt, two countries going at it, you know. And so then that time, um, obviously, uh, a lot of people, you know, my parents would have knew a lot of people that would have died in that war as well, just innocent civilians as well. And uh, even my grandmother was... She was hurt from the 
Shields heard from one of the attacks, you know, when a rock kind of, you know, from the obviously F sixteen plane, whatever it was at that time, um, when it kind of blew up one of the, you know, one of the tents, you know, obviously then my grand my grandparents were living closer to that tent as well, and uh, whatever they, you know, kind of the thing off the plane uh, from the rockets. So would, it be, would it be like debris from the, uh, whatever it is? Yeah. So that yeah, so that kind of that kind of paralyzed my grandmother's whole arm for the rest of her life. She oh. was in a like you know cast thing, you know, for the rest of her life, you know, because of that as well. And then they were kind of then, so there's about you know at that time at the height it would have been about fifty thousand Kurdish people kind of moved out of that Karamasha province, and there's about thirteen. I think at that time it was twenty thousand. Then it was thirteen thousand people. They're all brought to. By the Iraqi army in a back of army trucks, they're all brought up to the place called the Crater, as the name Al Tash Camp, you know. And they brought them to Al Tash Camp. It was in Ramadi, city of Ramadi. You probably heard of it when with all the wars when the American trying to invade it. It was a Saddam Hussein stronghold, but they put us kind of they put my family in the middle of nowhere there. And at that time, when they put them in, they were in tents, and they had. And there was cages around the whole tent, around the whole tents, you know, so the, around the whole thirteen thousand people that were controlled, you know, and so obviously over the years it took, you know, to pull down the barriers, you know, the cages, and they were able to move around a little bit more freely, you know. So they ended up there for from nearly from eighty, from close to around nineteen, you know, from from the eighties to. From around 1981 to around 88, 1988, then obviously we had relations over in Kurdistan of Iraq, a place called Zarayan. And obviously we had a lot of uh, family relations that were kind of as well, they were caught up in the middle of the war as well, you know. But then my parents were like, there was some stage they wanted to go back as well, you know. Because you're living in the middle of nowhere and there's a lack of food and everything else on top of that, you know. And so they moved back and this was still the war was going on, you know. And obviously the the snook out the the snook out the refugee camp then from from eighty six. They went back into the Kurdistan of Iraq. So they went back there for two years. Into the in the middle of the in the middle of the war, and they got a house over there, obviously by the government or whatever they were, because they were still a refugee. So, and obviously they had relations fighting in the war as well. And so then, when the war, this was when they were there. Then the Halabja attack happened. The chemical attack happened, you know, and they were not there. I think it was twenty minutes away from there from Halabja. And so the five thousand people, five six thousand people died that day. They can't get the exact number, but they reckon about six thousand, and then probably another ten ten thousand or suffering from the chemical attack injuries. And even that time, my mother said, you know, when that happened, you know, they put up about thirty people from Halabja that night. We were running away from it. They put them up in their house over there for a couple of days, and then this was still in the middle of the war, so. At night, they'll sleep in the house. And during the day, they used to go up the mountains. And they used to do that constantly for two years. Uh, when that war was going on. Because the reason was for that was um, 
because when they're because the Iraqi army could um because it was a lot easier for back then for helicopters and planes when they're flying. It was the, a lot. It wasn't. It's not like the way that they have the technology. You know, they have a drone with a camera can see your every movement. You know, but back then it was different. So the only kind of bomb at during the day where they can see. You know, in helicopters and stuff. The Iraqi armies would only kind of go into areas during the day. Then the night, you know, it was a lot more dangerous for them to go into areas during. You know, especially this when the chemical attack happened. And then and the Kurdish revolution, the Peshmerga fighters were fighting against the Iraqi regime. There was all this kind of mixer of fighting and stuff was going on. And obviously where my parents lived and it was kind of, they were in the right kind of, they were in the middle of it at that time as well. And even my parents had kids and stuff like that as well, a lot of kids. And so then when the, when the war stopped, when the war stopped in 88 then, so the Iraqi army obviously then took, because there was a peace deal done between Iraq and Iran and then, you know that the Iranian will pull back, and then so it was. It was a very, very. It was a very, very messy war. You know, it was um, it was very messy. You know, so anybody could have get caught up in it. And then the Iraqi army came and they picked up the two hundred people of my family back in the army truck, back to the refugee camp where they started again, and then they were back to the yeah. So they were back to the refugee camp then again. We lived there till 2002. And then, obviously, then I was born in 1991 when the Gulf War started then as well. America and NATO then start bombing the shite of Iraq then for 38 days, 38 nights. And I was kind of just right. The night I was born, America started bombing the fuck out of Iraq then. You know, it's, it's, you know and then my mother said it was the... Uh, everywhere said it was the worst, you know, it was the worst uh, night that I was born, you know, it wasn't a happy, uh, because at that time then I was born and when Iraq were buying everybody fleed out, outside, you know, moving into the, the kind of just the middle of nowhere, you know. Were you uh, born in, like, were you born in, in, in the, in the refugee camp? In the refugee was, camp, yeah. Yeah, or was there a hospital or was it, like, was there no, a hospital? No, no, every one of our families were born at home. So there's no hospitals, no nurses, no doctors. It was just like if their friends gave a hand, let's put it that Did your mother ever fear that you might develop some, you know, some issues because you weren't born in a, in a hospital and, you know, you were born in, in that environment? Well, no, I actually never asked. She'd be slagging now sometimes, you know, me brothers and, you know, sisters and people are be there like, you know, they'll, uh, they'll go for a checkup every two months, every <laughs> kind of carry on. There's none of that, you know, when you know, I was born or any of my family. There was, man, there was 1,200,000 th- people were there. A lot of them, I'm sure a couple of thousand were born and that kids like me, you know. And it was, it was the same thing, you know, but there was no hospital, no nothing. Everywhere. You were just born at home and that was it and your friend and family or your friends who gave a hand and that was it, you know. And can you remember but, what life uh, was? Can you remember what life was? Um like growing up in there it's um life is it's completely different now if you're trying to compare it to or if you're trying to compare it to ireland it was completely completely different um people actually in in people everybody lived in fair in iraq obviously because of saddam he just turned to a dictator you know and he um he just kind of controlled the whole 
country where with an iron fist and nobody could say one bad word about him or you're probably never seen again like you know or your whole family being prison and that that's what it was like you people who are living a fearful life even in school or anywhere on the nobody nobody dared to say a word uh about you know saddam and it was a dictatorship country, you know, ever, everything. There'd be statue of him everywhere, pictures of him everywhere, every hospital, every ministry is Saddam Hussein Hospital, Saddam was Ministry for Office, Saddam Hussein. Everything was just, everything was named after him, you know. I believe it was the same in school. I think you're only going to school for two hours, but would it, would it, would it, the propaganda have affected you at the time in, in regards to like, if he came in, would it have been like um, a star appearing as children? Did the propaganda work on you? Because obviously you were young at the time. Looking back now, you can you can differentiate and you can identify it. Yeah, because when you're younger, everybody wanted to be him, you know, because with his flashy suits and you you think Conor McGregor was flashy. <laughs> he, had an, he had an patch on him and said, uh, Saddam, if you watch some of Saddam's videos and all the style he had, Conor McGregor was probably 50 years behind him, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He had over 17 palaces, all worth, you know, all worth freaking $500 million each, you know, every year for his birthday. He used to build a new palace. But when you're watching him on TV with his 5,000 bodyguards and soldiers around him, you know, smoking the big cigars, big mustache on him, he was like a proper mafia. When you're a kid as well, like you wanted to be him. You wanted to be that bad guy, you know, because you don't know any difference and everybody, he's the president, you want to be like him, you know. And I say it was, every, every kid that was there, it was like, especially when you're, if you're ever going to, if you're going to the cities in Ramadi, you're traveling by car into the city and you just see a big picture of him like this, you know, the way a big, you know what I mean, or like posing and big, you're talking big, big pictures the size of a bit, like an Irish household, you know. But um, and then the big, massive statues, you know, um, massive statues, you know, and you could see it from all like, and obviously when you see all this, you want to be that, don't you? Like, you know, who doesn't want to be him? You know, and what's and it like nowadays, Zach? You know, do, are they still there? Are all those statues and things still there? Is it all? No, all everything is gone. It took years to take it all down, you know. Uh, no, it's all uh, it's it's all gone now. There be no, I don't think anybody will use the word Saddam now either because what he done to the people and he'd be arrested. Obviously, his political party is banned, you know. But then uh, his, but then Saddam Hussein's daughter, like she, she took a billion dollar with her in cash when she went to Jordan. You know, it's just before the war started, a couple of two days before or three days, went to the bank. Saddam signed a check. There you go. Take it all in cash. Big load of trucks. <laughs> and now she's the billionaire in Jordan, protected by the royal family over there. Um, oh. and, and then she obviously, you know, Saddam's wife, I don't know if she's still alive because you just don't hear aunt from her. She's been in her probably 90s now. She lives in Qatar, obviously, in the war. She went to Qatar with one of her other daughters. But the two sons got killed, you know. Um, got killed by the Kurdish and American forces, you know. And... Mm. Well, that whole Iraqi parliament, every one of them were, every one of them were executed, really, killed or died in prison, you know. It just shows, you you know, you don't last long if you keep it up, you know, keep trying to control the country with an iron fist, you know. 
Definitely, definitely. Like, you, you, you might get away for 30 years or 40. You won't, you won't last too long. People say, oh, well, Castro, well, he lasted. For, but I'm like, well, he didn't go uh, kill 5,000 people in one day. He didn't go slaughter, execute people in the middle of the street. He didn't go put um, hanging people every day when the prisons were full. He didn't do that, obviously, you know. He might have done, he might have put you in prison for 20 years, but not, you know what I mean? When there was that, when you Iraq, sorry, what were you going to say? Sorry, but then obviously, Iraq has changed since 2003. Um, well, the Kurds have got a lot more power, you know. So, the president of Iraq will always be a Kurd, you know, and then the prime minister is a Shi, yeah. The other vice president is a Sunni, you know, so it's, you know, because Iraq is very multicultural, you know, and you have to be able to divide the political kind of standards, kind of. Well, wait, I don't know what way to put it into words, but um, because back then Iraq was only it used to be just Saddam and his his brothers and cousins. Everything was kind of his cousin was the ministry for this. His other cousin was this, and his other half brother was this. You know, there was all this minister for this transport. Is uh, like I remember um, I seen him when I was on telly. He was um. He was slagging the minister for transport. He said he hasn't a clue what he's doing. <laughs> and even it was funny, his own relation, he said. <laughs> when he took power around close to 78, was it 79? Yeah, 78, 79, where he took power. For, and he had his first uh, f- first AGM, as I call it, with the Iraqi, his own political party, sat down with a big cigar, the secret, was it the... The head of the police kind of just calls out names of people and he said, these people are the enemy of the political parties. And he's just there, name calling. And the video is actually on YouTube, you know, you could see it. And everybody's shivering. Oh, I hope he doesn't call out my name. And there was a 30, 40 lads were called out and they got the people in the parliament to shoot them. And, and they were never seen again. And then after that, and that was on Iraqi TV kind of live at that time. And the kind of just showing the Iraqi people, you cross me. That's what will happen to you. I don't care if you're my friend or not. But he killed his own two son-in-laws as well. I believe the effect of, of him came to your own door as well at, at one stage. Yeah, well, that's it. Obviously, my, my dad done, you know, a year and a bit in, in, in prison as well, in Evergrave. It's like nearly everyone in, in Iraq kind of suffered under him, you know. And at the same time as well, like, you have to look back as well. How did he become so powerful? Before I get any further, actually, uh, Zach, I'd like to just bring you back to that time when your father was in prison. Um, you know, obviously, he was one of the one of the hundred and fifty who who left their jobs because obviously they weren't getting the the money. Um, can you remember visiting visiting him? And do you think you've any after effects of of visiting him now, looking back? Yeah, obviously, every time, obviously, when you're younger, you're only about 10, you know, obviously, it's, it's, um, obviously, it's scary, you know, it's, um, you know, especially, it was just, every time it was really scary when you're going in and you're a kid, but at the same time, you're happy you're going to see your daddy and, you know, and, um, so, the the section he was in, so it would have been people all in his old, his age, you know. And to me, this seems to this seem to have had a lot more um, freedom than the kind of the rest of them, you know, because there's people obviously in cages couldn't move out. There were I remember one, the Tasfiyat was called. I remember there was I went in, 
small prison. They must have been a hundred people in a like little cage like that, all standing up, fell onto each other, you know. And I said, I said, like them people, there hardly be any space for them to sit down. Do you know what I mean? Never mind, you know. Um, uh, the prison was in bits. You could see blood and everything all over the walls and. Or then when I went in, my dad's like, they kind of was like a little bit of luxury with them, a bunk bed, you know, and there's three of them sitting down and drinking tea and they were in the yard kind of, you know, and everybody else were, were in the in the cages, you know. So it was kind of, but obviously they were, they would have been treated a little bit more, a lot more differently. They weren't criminals, you know, even if, even we have pictures of him in the prison uh, with all the lads that are sitting down. I actually picture in the book, you know, and they're sitting down the, and the prison officer, the police, they're sitting with them and drinking a cup of tea, you know, and they're just sitting down there. Some of them are smoking and, you know, so they were treated a bit more different. They were there for a different reason than, than the rest of the probably people were there, you know, but you could end up in prison. Anybody could end up in prison there. I say if you were a young lad, you would have been treated a lot more differently, you know, you would have been better around the place. Can you, do you think you've any, do you think it has affected you going in visiting and hearing all the noises and, and seeing the blood and, and whatnot? At that time, you know, when you're younger as well, you're like, it's scary, you know. It's like, remember, you'd be going in your friends, your, your families and your brothers and relations before we get a little mini bus and you get down and visit and bring, obviously, just bring food and stuff for them as well, you know. Probably be a more, a lot more, I'd be a strong person, you know. I try to not to look back too much, you know. <laughs> but I could understand what, what it's like if someone had one of their relations or their father or parents in prison, you kind of, but sometimes, like, I'm trying to, because the problem was over there was a dictatorship he was living in, and he ended up in prison for no reason. And they eventually got the pardon, and they were all let go, you know. They were meant to be in there for a long time, so they only spent, like, so he, he would have been in and out of prison as well, like, you know, three months out and back in again, six months out, in and out again, and they're back in again. Do you get me? So what? it's kind of... And what was that like and, as a child, you know, him been home for a while, then gone again and anticipating when he'd be back? You know, uh, it, was an, it, was, it was a nightmare for the family, but it was at that time we we're kind of told that he's coming home every day. Was he's coming home tomorrow? Do you get me? But how do you, you, you know, told? You know what I mean? Do you think that affected you? You know, older now looking back, do you think you've some signs of you do something or. or but it's dated back to that constant anticipation for your your father to be coming home. Do you think like you deal with do you have anxiety or are dealing with certain situations? But it's because of 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 that moment in your in your childhood. I don't know because I just don't be trying not to think about it. Um, it, like when you look back, it was scary, you know. And because it was uh, over there, it was like, oh, he's coming home tomorrow, he's coming. Like, obviously, when he came home then, like, geez, I, mean, I mean, thousands of people came for visits, you know, because we still have the videos at home, you know, and all big tapes, you know, and big tapes. Um, <laughs> they were treated differently. Like, when I look at him, he was very uh, clean-shaven and was very clean, and you know. And they were different because the reason they were in there as well, because... There was two, they were working for a two oil company. I mean, an oil company, two, two different engineering firms, you know, they were in charge of it, obviously, you know, and one of them took the other one to court and whoever lost ended up in prison, you know, Oh my, God. So my dad was just in the wrong one. He had no say, you know, 
he was the only oil uh, oil driver, obviously. And this was when the sanction, Iraq needed money, and they were trying to, you know, fund the military, and Iraq had a one million military, so they were trying to, you know, try to get money, much as money as they could off the oil and smuggling and stuff like that as well, you know? Let's, but, um, let's before I, sorry for interrupting there, just before, before we... Uh, just run out of time, but I'd like to kind of, you know, delve into how you ended up in Ireland, because I know your your brother was with the United Nations, but how did he get a job with the United Nations when you would have been in the refugee camp? Well, he just got a job because he was able to speak English fluent, you know, good English, you know, very good English and Arabic and Farsi, so he was able to speak languages fluent, you know. I could, so that's far then. Yeah. So then um a relation of ours used to work there and he used to be very well as you know, his book English he used to speak English dictionary. See what happened um, over there because the UN and the Red Cross and so on were kind of uh, looking after the refugee camp. They, they were looking after the refugee camp and um so you go for interviews. Like we we actually should have been in Ireland around two thousand because my dad was in prison and it delayed and delayed. When he got out, then we were able to come. Then you know we got three more weeks notice of your own. So we came here as a you know most Kurdish people came here as a political program refugee. When you landed in Ireland, what was it like? It must have been a shock to the system. No English, extreme cold. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was real. Yeah, it was real cold, and that was first of July, so it's the summer here. You know because. When we were leaving, it was probably 40 degrees, you know, so it's different types of weather, you know, it's, and when you come over here, it was really, really cold, you know, it was, the cold was going through my bones, you know, I never felt anything like it, shivering, Ireland was, you know, obviously looked gorgeous, everything seemed peaceful. And why, why Leitrim, um, Zach, was it, was it just you, you were allocated Leitrim or what was, what well, was we were it? allocated to Leitrim, yeah, allocated to Leitrim, yeah. And I think sometimes down the countryside is a probably great place to kind of start life as well. Because in, in the cities, I, I think the cities are probably the wrong place to be relocated to because the city is busy. People are busy, don't have time to be doing anything. Do you get me helping now around? Because I know it's what it's like in the cities. You're always going to walk your Russian home. You're, do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's for refugees, probably the countryside is probably the best place to go to start off life. And then after that, go wherever you want, you know? So the, the well, eleven um, of you, the eleven of you would have came over twelve of you. So eight brothers, thirteen of us, thirteen. Thirteen. So were you in like what was the setup? Were you in a three bedroom house or, or what was the or a four bedroom house in in Leitrim? And how did you end up in in Dublin then? Uh, we were in. I think it was a four, five bedroom house. Was that? See, most of us were lads, so we were able to make the bunk beds. You know, so it was it was grand. You know. It was, it was um, it was a big enough house. Though. Most country houses are big anyway, you know. So it was a big, a big house, big garden, place football and. How did the GA come into your life? Well, that was it. Then, like, it was kind of just soccer kind of play. I played soccer down in, in the refugee camp, and then GA just kind of just started in primary school. Then Gaelic and Hurling within within them within a month. Just when I started school, it was a month or a month or two, and then. School started then straight away getting into the GAA and that was it. Never looked back and just got, got into it and it was something different and, and I kind of enjoyed playing it as well, you know. So um, it was different and it was enjoyable and 
it seemed most of the kids that were talking about sports, it was always Gaelic mostly, and then hurling, and then soccer, and basketball. Then I played all sports, so it was uh, it's good to play all sports when you're a kid, you know, try everything, you know, because you've not you've nothing to lose, you know. And you you and you'd then, always uh, take aspects of it for for later on in life as well, you know. You never know who you might meet or. You know, you're moving your body different ways in hurling than you would in rugby, for example, or running, whatever the case may be. Come here, how did you end up in Dublin and in, in, in Tala? Uh, how we ended up here was because there was a lot of, um, the older brothers were getting a bit older and, you know, one of them got a job here and then the other one, you know, because we knew Kurdish people that were here as well, so in Dublin as well, so it was a lot easier as well. And because we were after from going from speaking no English then to now, you know, and the English picked up and same with all the other brothers, their English picked up. The time when we came over there was only one brother spoke English. Uh and the rest just kinda of picked it up and when we were in Leitrim and life kinda of just began in Leitrim and probably finish off and you wouldn't know where to finish off, but um could finish off in Dublin or could finish off in Leitrim. So my dad my dad wanted to keep all the family together because he didn't really got the same chance when he was younger because because through the wars and all that same with my mom all their sisters and families ended up all different parts of the world you know because of the war and they want to just keep the family together stick together and then we came we all came to together and then we're all still together except Bumbara is uh in Sweden and we're all living in Tala you were the lead from Harler but you were living in Dublin how did that happen? Well, I used to, because through the, the friends I met over in Leitrim over the years, I used to still get around there, you know, and friends, Alan Duffy and a few lads were used to, Dara, Paddy, there was a few lads who were playing hurling, they still play, but I used to still get down there and stay in their houses, you know, and and then a couple of years later, I'd still be down there, and Martin Kniff, because I knew Martin, because he would have had me when I was younger, same with Paddy feeling. so it would be the same kind of, there would be the same three or four lads in, in Leitrim, you know, you know, six, seven lads that be running the hurl in all their lives, you know. And they asked me, would I give it a go? And then at the time, it was, I think it was around 19 or 20 at that time, you know. 20, was it 20? Around 20, 21. I'm not sure, but 20 I was, you know. And I said, you know, I've nothing to lose. I said, I'll give it a go. And then, but I didn't realize traveling was in it, you know. I just said, yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I said, give it a go, sure, see how it happens. So twice a week you were going uh, to Leitrim, were you? Twice, three times a week. Yeah, we're in Leitrim. Sometimes we're in Mullingar. Sometimes we're in Tuberburn, Offaly. We struggled to find a place to train. That was the only thing with Leitrim Hurling. There was always a struggle to find facilities to train. You know, sometimes I remember we see, sometimes you go up. You know, you'd be training on a pitch. You'd rented in Mullingar, and you'd be in inter county. There'd be the Westmead footballers there. There could be the Sligo footballers on the other side. There could be sometimes you share a pitch between three three teams. There could be a club team, and like imagine like for inter county team, like it's fucking disaster, you know. Where you had to smile, like how are you meant to achieve anything in life, you know, when you have to go through that, and then you don't. Yeah, but when, on, when... on on that point, Zach. So you saw that side of things with a county like Leitrim, but you would have grown up with guys who would have been on the Dublin squad. So you you, you yeah. have to see both aspects as such. From what you've seen, how can that gap be improved? I won't, I would never say, I, I won't say the gap would be completely gone, but how can that gap 
be improved because it just seems to be getting wider and wider and, and counties like Leitrim, Sligo, whatever the case may be, you know, it's hard to keep up with the, the likes of, of, of Dublin and Limerick. I, I think because of facilities is very important. I know people tell you money is not going to win you anything. Of course money is going to make you success, but not everybody is going to win out of 32, 34, count 32, 10, then we can include New York and all them, 34 counties, right, 35, right? Um, like not every like money can can put a structure together for you. You know, you know, you're in Dubai, okay? Mm-hmm. Example, you're living in Dubai, right? Dubai was a desert, right? And look at Dubai. What made Dubai the place it is now? Money. money. Yeah. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. You know what made Crow Park the facility it has? Money. Yeah. You know. It's um anything we any anything we wear, it's money. Anything we eat, it costs money. Anything we drive, the minute we leave our house, you pay money. The minute you walk on that road, you're paying tax on us. <laughs> so anybody telling you money doesn't create success, it's you know, a brain dead as I call it. Um because Money has created this, and obviously the, the richer counties are always going to be miles ahead. Of it. And I think that's the way it's gone now. The richer counties are just Dublin, Kerry, you know, and obviously they're a bigger population as well, and they're successful counties as well. But up to 1996 and all that, are getting to all our semifinals, you know. Money didn't come into it at all. You know, everybody barely going around with sponsorships. They fight, if you get me? Mm-hmm. There was no, um, everyone had two coaches in a, so two coaches and a trainer or something for a, a physio. I don't even know if physio even existed. Some sort of physio. Probably anyway, not, no. doctor they had. <laughs> yeah. And now you're looking around, they have about 35 backgrounds, you know. You're looking around, they're like, a, they're like an army going on the pitch. All that costs money. Like Leitrim now already, they're begging already for the, they're going to New York this year. They're already, before Christmas, they were begging for 50 grand. Where were they going to get the 50 grand from? Do you know? Like, you're never going to hear, uh, like, Leitrim, imagine they're going to actually play a championship match and they're, they're looking for 50 grand because they have no money. And, for sure, Kerry and Dublin and them and, you know, and Limerick and all these boys, they get a holiday every year. So it costs probably 100 grand. <laughs> so I remember a, a friend of mine is on the, he's on the Dublin team. I won't mention his name. And he says, Jesus, we went, uh, we went away with Dublin there. Uh, they brought 80 of us away with their families and all everything was paid for imagine bringing 80 people the money it cost my god that's crazy <laughs> you know and they need to I don't know there's a big divide in, in wealth wise and money wise so what I would do I would give if I was GA I need to look at a bigger picture right I'm looking you know why am I giving these counties such a big money if they're bringing their uh, you know you know uh, 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 why am I like obviously I'm giving the county where they go on holidays every year, spend blowing hundred fifty grand in a party, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. I'll take a hundred fifty grand away from them, give it to a county like Sligo or Leitrim. You know, let's put it into the put it into the more coaching or put it into the more facilities for them. Because I see why our football team, you know, are are miles that I see why they're miles ahead of the St. Mary's my club. Even my club, they won the Leitrim Championship, you know. St. Mary's, they won the Leitrim Senior Championship. They won everything in Leitrim. But they might win everything in Leitrim, but when they go outside Leitrim, they don't. I tell you why. The reason for that is 
because they don't have that opportunity. We have in our clubhouse, we have a gym, we have an Astro, we have floodlights, you name it. We can train all year round. And most Dublin GA clubs train all year round. It's um like we're back with on the 14 hurling team the last two weeks. There's a reason why Dublin hurling is ahead of Leitrim or they're ahead of there's a reason why, example, I give football as it there's a there's a reason why our club under 14 football team is miles ahead of the a club in Leitrim under 14 football because they start early training. We start, they start in January and Leitrim, they've, they've nowhere to train. They might get a small as a sports or kicking the ball inside the sport. They start training in March, you know, because they haven't got the Astro facilities. I think they have a, I don't, no, there isn't even an Astro in Leitrim. There's some soccer Astro they use, you know, for our training session there. But sure, they're never going to be they might be, they might win an odds, you know, they'll, they'll get there, they get to a league final and they might win something small. They're never going to get to the, unless, you know, as I said before, they need to build Astros or they need to build something like Abbottstown in Dublin they have. Was the opportunity ever there for you to play with Dublin? I wouldn't have been good enough now, to be fair, you know, Dublin are, the standard is very high. I was on the de- development squad when I was younger for Gaelic, you know? All right. So, yeah, so I was on it and when I look at it there, like, you know, the setup and all that, the facilities you had for training for Dublin under 15 and 16 when I was on it, Gaelic, and the way you're treated and trying to cook, trying to compare to um, a Leitrim senior hurling team where you couldn't find a pitch to train, you know? Like, there's there times, poor old Martin, the manager, and Paddy and all that, oh, and like, sometimes you get a text and not text and a message on WhatsApp. We're not 100% sure yet we're training, but we'll be training. <laughs> you could be waiting around. Okay, we're training in Tubber. Lads, it's season Tubber for nine o'clock. And you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, you never got home, you know? And that's why. And it's, you're never, like, you never had a place where you could say, right, this is the place. I'm sure Kerry and Dublin, they know where they're going to be training all year. Do you get me? 99% mm-hmm. they'll have three places sussed out, you know, for the year, you know? Yeah. Uh, but in Leitrim and them small counties, you, you feel sorry for them. You know, I feel sorry for them now when I'm looking back. You know, it's um there, and I even seen Keith Burns. You know, he'd be Leitrim's probably the best footballer. You know, and he's a great footballer. You know, from and and then he gave an interview. What what's the you know? He gave an interview there. You know, like straight away he says what well, he says. He says you know finance is the the struggle. You know. And it's and you, you like you never hear you would never hear a Limerick hurler we're struggling for a finance uh, we're struggling for a or a carrier you know they uh, if, if they even say they might be looking for two million not uh, one point five you know but each them like and it just shows when they when they, when they have the county secretary you know you know on the paper on the news each observer they're looking for fifty grand it's going to cost the fortune it just shows. Mm-hmm. It shows why there's a big divide in, you know, the way it's, the money has changed the GA, I think, you know, even mm-hmm. at club level now, I've noticed in Dublin as well. The richer clubs are seem to be getting ahead, you know, because you can put a structure together, you can get the best coaches, you can, you can, you can build facilities, you can build, you know, and that's what, um, and now that's, that's the big difference between richer clubs in Dublin as well. The, the rich clubs, the rich clubs are becoming successful because the money and the power behind it. I remember Shane Allen said I was on the nightlife. Uh, it was a nightlife, I think it was called off. Oh, on the you know it used to be called the Claiborne Show. 
Oh yeah. But, uh, Monday night life. Yeah, Monday night life. So I was on it, and then obviously we didn't have just too many of us on it, and it didn't get me point across really. It didn't get it across because he tried to say that we're literally successes uh, from the from the the, the 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 great people of Limerick they put in their great work and the coach and all that. But every county has that, every club has that, you know. You know, like so so he's trying to say that um, you know, uh I think he just kinda don't understand the smaller counties that are going through because he's he's kinda grown up in that and grown up in that kind of bubble and he's played with a successful club in the parish and winning championship senior mm-hmm. championship year after year. So he doesn't really know what you know, so he's you know, obviously when you win and all the a lot of money comes in then obviously as well, you know. But and, um but exactly. until afterwards but, until, yeah. until afterwards we had a chat and uh, you know I respect him a lot he's a great hurler you know and he says would you not unleash from someone someone rich there to give you a couple of hundred thousand I was like what a couple of hundred thousand <laughs> obviously he doesn't you know it's 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 um sometimes you know they, they say that um we need uh, you know they just think every county is getting delicate you know the the funding they actually don't know like they might see a sponsorship in Longford you know GA they think they're getting the same as their county you know they don't know it's a lot more lesser but I always say every club and every county has great you know great coaches everybody put in the volunteer but mm-hmm. but every club and every county hasn't got access to the same budget that's where the difference that's where the difference is that's where like we have an like we we have a beside our main pitch we have we have a pitch to you know we have another pitch and they're trying to you know work on it you know, but the problem is now you know you get your government grant hundred grand it costs seven hundred grand to do the pitch you know, to get a full size pitch you know to do it up properly, but like where are we going to get the where are we going to get the other five hundred thousand or six hundred thousand you know, mm-hmm. and now what happens then, that will put our club behind, it will it will it will it will put us a step. Be- step behind the other clubs because what happens then we'll be caring more about raising fundraise which other clubs are you know that are richer their aim the players just concentrate on playing mm-hmm. they don't be constrained about buying a lotto ticket or buying a, you know buying like something like this I had to do Zach will you send 20 of these Christmas draw going around you know but look, I've no problem. I do it all the time for the club, you know. But it's like we have to work a lot more harder than I know. Most clubs around the country, they have it the role of the clubs and selling a lot. But rich clubs in Dublin, I never hear a player, you know, going around selling lots of tickets or that, you know. But um, that's where the funding comes in. Sometimes when you when you're playing, I remember I asked one of my friends, I was like, "Jesus, will you? Would you not? You know, would you not sell, sell a few them lot of tickets or them raffles or? Because was like, I should be." I should be concentrating on playing. You know, my job should be concentrating on playing. I want to win something with the club. People start coming to me, sell this, go coach a team and do this. And, you know, if too much going on and training three, four times a week as it is, you know, I'm, I want to, you know, concentrate, you know. And then I kind of like, I, I got where you come from, you know. And then I went up to, a, you know, a, you know, I've, I've, I've friends from other to play with the cool and, you know, Crokes and I know lads that play with him. I was like, would you ever say what? You know, look at me, what? No, I said, would you ever like, you know, do, you know, coach a team or, well, no, show me face that time. You know, it just shows like we kind of have to, if you're, especially we're in a working class area. I know every one of our senior footballers and hurlers in the club, the ladies, we are all coaching the kids team and Thomas Davis in the club, you know, and probably makes a big difference now. 
but I don't I, I don't see it in the bigger clubs doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah, know, because there's finance there. There, there, there's finance there, and they're able to take in most big clubs in Dublin have direct of sport. They have two coaches fully paid, you know, and they're able to do mm-hmm. all the. We like we don't have any of that, you know. It's um, and that's how success comes down then, you know, because the money can yeah. Pay for all that. It's a GA, it's a voluntary organization. And at the same time, it's, you know, people play. I play hurling and Gaelic, not for money, for the love of the game. And there's no money involved anyway. But it kind of, it's just people need, GA clubs need money. Facilities is the most important thing, you know? Yeah. If you can, yeah. you know, and it costs a lot of money to run teams, insurance money, 120 grand a year. And sometimes, especially in Thomas Davis, we just be delighted to get kids up there, you know, with some clubs to charge. Join the club to charge three hundred quid membership for it, for a child, you know. Which we we're delighted if they even give ten quid or twenty euro, <laughs> you know. And, and, to, you know, it doesn't even cover them playing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then and then yeah. it puts the whole committee in the club. The first thing it should be all about the teams. What we're going to do? It's about finance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, and yeah. on that point, so you don't charge membership, do you? No, we do, but we do charge membership, but like we don't say, okay, here, we don't force anybody to, you know, uh, force anybody to 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 pay. Like I remember the lad I was there before Christmas for a drink and he says, oh, geez. he says, when you join that club, you know, if you're bringing a young fellow up, uh, you know, if you bring your young fellow up, your, your father and mother have to, he said, if I was 10 years of age, I'd join. My mother and father have to join as well. It cost nearly 500 quid. Whoa. But this is the richer areas in Dublin, and you probably know what I'm talking about. Jeez. And I was like, what? 500 quid? And then I'm like, I wonder your senior hurling team has a 1 million quid in their bank account. You know? So there is... <laughs> so <laughs> so there, there's there, there's a difference. And I were like, yeah. if we got that off, 20 lads in Thomas David's GA club would be doing well off 20 young fellas, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then, I, lucky, yeah. lucky we have a great facility and uh, in Thomas David's GA club, you know, through the years, people people have put a lot of funding, people sell a lot, a lot of tickets and, yeah. you know, the great people in, in Thomas David's GA club and Tyler have put in, a, they've come together and they're always willing to give a few quid and just to keep it going and it's, uh, and the club is going in the right direction at the minute, you know. So good, good, good. And, and Zach, on, on that point, I like to because I know there's a story before about um, you getting the Irish passport. Uh, you have it now, don't you? I have, yeah, yeah. But there is an issue when you're flying back from the UK. You, everyone obviously was going through the one lane, and you had to go through the other lane, and there was a delay for two hours. Um, what was the process like? Say, was that the moment you realized, look, I need to get the Irish passport? And what was the process involved in getting it? Um, like it's one my own fault as well. Like, kind of, I never when you parents applied around 2010, 11, you know, I think it was the time they were able to apply, and they applied, and I was kind of over 18, so I had to apply on my own. And you know, you, you get a bleeding about 20 pages to fill in, and you know, you're young for it, you're like, jeez, oh, you know, the effort of that, you know, and you kind of just, I just kind of never bothered really, you know, I left this. I left it too too late because I never because I wouldn't be really I I'd be afraid of traveling you know I fucking hate traveling you know and it's um I'm terrified of flying flying I don't know I'm afraid I don't know what it is I'm just terrified I'd rather be in a car all day you know so I never thought I needed it until I started going over for 
for hurling matches down for, uh, down to Birmingham and all that, going over to Lancashire. And and that was when we came back as held. I was like, oh, none EU. I was like, oh, I'm traveling back. I'm in none EU. So, so I was queuing up for about two hours. I was like, oh, here, I need to get my act together and start flying. And I got stuck in then and then took then with the COVID and everything else before. And it took a while then. Obviously, then because they had no birth cert as well and they kept sending paperwork back, questions, blah, blah, blah. Do you get me? So there was, um, so it, it, it made it a lot harder then, you know. Have you ever received, you know, hatred or negativity on the pitch? Not not much, probably once or twice. It, it, it wouldn't really bother me, really, you know. Um, I know some Irish lads, but look, we're, we're, we're Kurdish people are used to different types of races and genocide and chemical attacks and, you know, torture and d- different type of races. And we're used to someone calling your name. It's, it doesn't just just a, a low life thing for people to say that you know, but it wouldn't really um, it wouldn't really bother me you know. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't really it just it it it, it does and it doesn't you get me but it wouldn't because you know it, it happens look there's racism everywhere in the world you know everyone isn't perfect you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. every refugee isn't perfect. Every immigrant, every Irish people isn't perfect. You're living in Dubai. Every Irish person isn't perfect over there either, you know. And every we're not all perfect either, you know. Just on, on, did, we're all perfect. yeah, yeah. Another another quick one there, Zach. Um, the you see a lot of refugees coming into Ireland now. What would you, you know, if you've met them or if you do meet them, what advice would you give to them? You know, to integrate into the country. Advice is my advice is is like you know it depends where they're from you know because um it depends where they're from sometimes if you're coming from Syria it depends because um like sometimes it depends where they come from because if they're from Ukraine they kind of know they kind of know the European style do you get me because they're closer to Europe they're in Europe really you know if they come from Middle East. Depends, you know, if they're Muslim, sometimes I don't know. Like, if they're Muslim, I'll say to them, put religion aside, you know, respect the law of this country the way its rules are, 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 and this is the way it is, you know. And you cannot bring the rules of law of your country to here because there's different rules of law here. So, let your kids be the same as the Irish kids, you know, let them be the way what they want to be. Don't be trying to make them live like the way they lived at home because it's a completely different culture, you know. In Ukrainian, they will they will integrate a lot lot more quicker because because they're European. They have the same similar life similar lifestyles, you know. You live in the Middle East there. It's a different lifestyle there. The people that live are from there. Mm-hmm. And and obviously obviously you're you're there, you know. In the MR, that's a different world up there, you know. Everybody's a millionaire there from there, you know. Everybody's well off. They live in luxury life, but um, like they're not going to move over here anyway. But um, yeah. So there's different different cu- cultures, and I think what sometimes um, yeah, I think Ukrainians and all that would integrate a lot more quicker than than a than a family from the Middle East usually because um. Unless the the reason for that is because their culture and everything's completely different, you know. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and it's nothing got to do with culture. It depends how religious the people are, you know. Mm-hmm. I think uh, um, religion in general is, is you know, a little bit of a problem in this world, you know. It's, um, it's, um, it's, they need to put religion aside and be religious at heart. It's like me, I'm a Muslim, I'm Muslim at heart, you know, but I don't be forcing Muslim onto anybody else. Do you get me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, no, definitely. Um, yeah. I don't let it to control my every life. It's like I look at it as an Irish Catholic person, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's a Catholic in heart, but he does not, you know. If the Bible says you shall not, you know, uh, you shall not, uh, you shall not have kids till you are married, that Irish person is not going to listen to that. Do you get me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most people, Irish people, have kids. They buy a house, and then they get married. <laughs> Do you yeah. Know what I mean? yeah. But your religion is against religion, you know, and, and same with the. Same in my religion, it's the same. There no religion is religion, they're all the same, you know. So I think that's um it's um if we want to go, I think that's that's my thing. I I would tell them, you know, you know, if you're a good Muslim, you're a good Muslim, be a Muslim at heart. Don't be taken on the same. If you're a Protestant, whatever religion, other religions you come from, be it. Don't be, you know, straight away coming here, you're looking for a place to pray and you're looking, let's get your life sorted here first and get it integrated integrate you into the society here but obviously it's a lot more there's a lot more things that's happening in ireland obviously because of um because of lack of houses were built the lack of you know social homes and stuff and now people find the easy target to blame refugees for it as well you know which is um which is uh shocking you know i think it's just kind of creating a bit more it's crazy creating a lot more racism kind of in the country then you know Mm-hmm. And, and to me, the people, to me, the 90 percent of the people that are protesting as well are kind of uneducated as well. The lack of understanding about uh, international, you know, human protection, international uh, uh, Geneva Convention, nineteen one fifty. Well, like we uh, as Ireland, we are signed up to all these things. We are part of the United Nations. We are part of the European Union. So we have to respect the rules of the European law. And if we don't want, as I said, if Ireland does not want to be part of part of the European Union, or and like sometimes, uh, like I think some of these protesters think when someone lands in the country, you can just send them back tomorrow. It doesn't work. I I keep saying, my friend, it doesn't work that way mm-hmm. because you can go and seek Islam in any country in the world. Maybe not in North Korea, unless you want to be a dictatorship. They can do that. They can send you home and they can, they're a dictatorship. And that's why their country is it. Sorry for my language, they're a shithole, you know? Yeah, what what does it mean to have the Irish passport for you now? Do you know, I suppose it does really cement your, your I, identity, doesn't it? Yeah, kind of. It shows, uh, it gives me the security, the belonging what I'm going to be, you know, for the rest of my life. And because it's the only passport I've held in my life. So it's, it's a great feeling. And it kind of, it makes me feel, you know, I said, uh, you know, I've a Kurdish blood and Irish heart. That's what I always say, you know, and, and why, that's, why are you known as Rattle Dinesh Moradi in Tala? Oh, that is just when I was younger, um, playing hurling, I used to get a lot of goals, you know. I was always scaring you to go, you know. 
um the lads used to be always you know rattling it um <laughs> it was it was it was a it was what you call it it was um used to be in, we used to there was a school teacher i had his name was mr canarney you know it was called mr he's awfully and he loved the hurling probably country man you know and uh it was kind of starting on the 14 is you're going to be full forward today i want you to rattle down this you know <laughs> and then and then um yeah so then uh, that was it and i i was i got a goal then and everybody starts slagging me Muradi rattled in it you know <laughs> that was with the surname you know and then after that then every time i got a goal the lads be slagging there you go mr canani Muradi rattled in it <laughs> and that was it you know i kind of just started there because uh because i was always going to forward i used to always get goals and hurling you know there's always mm. nearly a guarantee to go there every match, you know. So, and what's what value, you know? First of all, actually, why didn't you talk about your journey and and your experience while you were playing uh, hurling? Like, why didn't you do the book? Then well, did you want to wait till you finish? Well, well, it kind of just. It kind of, I'll be honest, I used to just play hurling. Like, people just thought I was adopted or something. You know, they never, you know, people just, oh, geez, he sounds like one of us, you know. They thought I was adopted. They thought I was, you know, a mixed race. They thought I was, because I never used to just, I just played away. Because lads will never ask you where you are. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They might slag you and all, have a bit of crack. But they never, like, no, and they was just, kind of just all started in 2000 and was this, around 16 and that, you know. When I kind of nominated for the Larry Maher All Star, it just kind of started. Oh, I don't know. it's just the name is different, and everybody just wants to know where I was from. And then, then over the years and all that, and just people are more interested in my story. And then I said, you know, I'll tell I'll tell people what a refugee has to go through, and tell them what a refugee is. You know, I'll tell them why we become refugees as well. You know, I think people just think everybody just comes in the back of a boat. We have to tell these people how all these happens. You know, because I think. I think people just think, you know, every refugee or they come over, they're just from poor, they were from poor countries, you know, it's, it's completely the opposite, you know. Our country was divided. Kurdistan is a very, very, very filthy rich country with oil and gas. It's, it's the same as the Emirates and the Qataris where they were riches as them, you know. But the problem is our country was divided in around the 1920s, 1923 by Britain and France and we were promised a country and then we were betrayed it and never happened. And now the Kurdish people have been suffering since. They've been suffering genocide, as I said, chemical attacks. You know, um, even in 1980, between between 1980, 1980, and we cannot find them in Kurdistan of Iraq. You know, this, we, we call it the Anfal campaign. Jeez, that's, and, that's, um, that's, that, uh, that's awful. That's horrific. Jesus. Um, and like, you've you know, you, you grown up in that and obviously experiencing that. And you moved to Ireland when you were in your early teens. I think you were 11 or 12, were you? You're, you weren't even yeah, in your teens. Yeah, 11. Eleven. Um, what was it like then to ultimately win that All Ireland in Croker? 
I felt amazing because um, not not everybody gets the chance to play in Crow Park. I always say, you know, people would always say sometimes, you know, Kerry people always get a chance or the dubs always. But I look at it now when I'm watching GAA. And Kerry, you know, when you look at that team, that team, it's the same players for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's only 25 players, you know, for that same, for that same, uh, you know. So for for the next 10 years, actually, an adult level, I guarantee only about 50 players in Kerry get a chance to play in Crow Park for 10 years, you know. It's mad when you look at it. People say, oh, Jesus, all these Dublin and them. But it's the same players. I'm looking at a Dublin footballer last you know, Kieran Kilkenny about be about thirty now. You know, I think you're thirty one, you're thirty. Yeah, I was just I'm looking at Dublin uh, footballers or the hurlers. I'm looking at the lads. So when I was twenty, it's nearly the same lads. It's between my age. I'm thirty two now, so it's the same lads between thirty twenty eight. I'm looking at, I'm like Kieran Kilkenny's still there. So I, nobody has replaced him. You know, I'm like Conor Callaghan is there now seven eight seven or eight years. No one has, so he's been mm-hmm. keeping that. You know, so it's the same 30 players from Dublin for 10 years. So if population of Dublin, a million and a half, whatever it is, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, you know, Dublin has a massive playing population. You know, like we have over geez, a thousand kids, you know, but like if you look at our club like our size, you know, probably in the last 10 years uh, in our club, even we have over 2000 members, right? Club like, you know, a massive, you know, 96 teams right in the club. I'm looking, there's only probably two lads in our club in the last 10 years have really got a chance to play probably in Crow Park, you know what I mean? Get a chance to play in Crow Park, you know? And same with every, it's, it's the same lads, like people think, just Kerry, like even when you look at it, it's not easy, it doesn't matter what county you play with. There's some some counties in Leeds never, in, in Ireland probably get a chance to play in Crow Park once in four years or once in five years. And same with um, even Kerry were out of the radio, radar for a couple of years, you know. Yeah. Kerry got the odd game in, in Crow Park, you know, and it can happen, you know, it can. But I always look at it, it's, you know. It's amazing when you look at it like that, Crow Park. What, you, what you've achieved in playing Crow Park. Yeah, so it's a great it's a great feeling. I would say not many people will get a chance. And that's it. Like, that was it. We got to play there twice. You twice know, was it. that's now nearly time. Yeah, and 2017 and 19, and now they haven't played there since. Leitrim footballer ha- haven't played in Crow Park since. Jeez, when was that league final? That was a couple of years ago. Now was it 2000? Mm. Could have been four years ago, five years ago. Division four. Like they haven't been playing there since, you know. And that was before that. It was not 2007, I think. You know. So, mm. so you don't. I always say nobody is like you're going to see David Clifford probably playing in Crow Park. It's going to be very hard to take his jersey off and the Clifford Doge. It's the same. So sometimes you can have generation coming and passing by not getting a, get, getting a chance in Crow Park, you know. And it doesn't matter how much of a good footballer I've seen in Dublin, you know, even football. You look at the last 10 years, it's been the same players. Yeah. Only five or more new lads. But out of thousands of thousands of players in Dublin, you know, it's, you know, every year you might get one or two lads, that were, you know, out of all the clubs in Dublin, you know, all the teams playing, you know, so you're not always guaranteed, even in Dublin, it's the same lads that will get a chance, so you have to take that opportunity, when you get a chance, you know, you know, you know, you should be delighted, you know, and that's why, um, and, that's, and that's the way it should be, you have, I always say, you have to fight hard to play in a bigger stadium, it's like soccer, it's like any sport, yeah. 
you know you have to you know you have to earn your earn your stripes as I say as your stripes or earn your you know you know as they say work hard and pay off you know exactly exactly and come here when you played hurling looking back now obviously you're still playing club what values did you learn from it discipline and I think discipline was kind of the thing I've learned you know do you have um, a morning routine, Zach? One morning routine I have is when I wake up out of bed, fix the duvet, the bed, and I said, I always say that the rest of the day will look after itself. Brilliant. Love that. Love that. Look, nobody mm. knows what the next five years will look like. We don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Um, but in an ideal world, where do you see yourself in the next five years? An ideal world. That's a very, you know, tough question, huh? Yeah, I think. Come on, look. I said, I said, I have to challenge you. Like before we we close it off. Like, what what would you like doing the next five years? Next five years, ah, I like to see myself. You know, next five, settle down and having a kid or having, you know, why not push not? Well, I have to find someone first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm thinking five years time now, so five years to yeah, <laughs> four years to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I love, you know, I love to see um, you know, in five years time, I love to see if my nephew can, you know, one of the nephews or nieces, you know, see them playing a senior level in club, whereas whereas ladies football or adult men's are hurting. I think that'd be that'd be kind of. I think that'd be kind of one of my dreams to see generation of our baddies, you know. If I'm gone, someone else take over. It's like what I see with the uh, Thomas Davis GA Club when I see when I see generation of, you know, friends, the lads I play with, you know, their father, some of them their father has played in the club, their grandfather, you can see pictures on the wall. I kinda I kinda want to see that in my family. I wanted to kind of be you know, down the line, I wanted to be a household name. Amazing, I love it's, that. I, I, I want to be. If I'm gone, finish playing. I want to see another Moradi. Well, there is. I've nephew and nieces play of the club in Thomas Davis. So, um, I like to see that, and I think it will keep up because there's a lot of nephews and nep- nephew and nieces are coming through. It'd be nice always to see, uh, yeah. you know, it's someone to look name. forward to. You know, it's it's not even you know it'd be. I think in every G in every GA club, it has a household name. Every mm-hmm. GA club, there's always, and I've noticed they, like, you know, in our club, they'd be Kirby's, they'd be going on for generation, and then there's O'Donnell's. There's, I think every club. What I want, yeah. I want the Moradis kind of, yeah, because there's Murphys, there's you know all the other, you know, you know Farleys. There's this and that. And they go back. I want kind of that. With my club, in our club, you know, and going going down the line and keep them involved in the club, you know. Brilliant. It's like, oh. um, it's like, it's like every club has household names, with the same people that are being involved. I want this, uh, I want this, this kind of to go on for generations, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. And what did um, what did, what do you think the J did for you? You know, did it give you identity and help you settle in to a new country? Yeah, it gave gave me identity. To, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of people um don't realize how much friends you make in GAA, 
And sometimes, I know it lasts me embarrassed sometimes to say it, but it's the reality. Like anybody that's involved with GAA, all their friends they've made is through GAA, you know? Mm-hmm. And I ended up, I used to be hanging around with lads that didn't when I was in school, hanging around with lads that didn't play sports. And and then I, hang, I then when I was playing hurling Gaelic, a weekends I was with the was the GA lads, you know. But as I got older, when I turned about eighteen, nineteen, you know, there were lads I was kind of hanging around with because they didn't play sports. It's not my fault. And but I end up always kind of hanging around with the the lads. But it's the same lads that played GA. They were the same, and the lads kind of now that didn't play sports, we kind of. It felt away, you know, fell apart because they had different types of different things. They're going down to watch some soccer match or something. When I'm like, I'm going down to the club watch a junior football match, you know. Mm-hmm. And it kind of are. So what happened? The GA lads and you know, we all got we all stuck together then, you know. And it's it's kind of it's the community and it's just it's just that vibe behind it. Like the GA, the GA is like a charity. Behind the scenes, in a, in real life, when I look at us, they're like a GA voluntary organization. Any money they have, they pump into the club and they build the club. And they're, I know they're a sports organization, but to me, they're like a charity. There's no, no one's getting paid. You know, mm-hmm. everything's voluntary. It's like if I'm trying to keep, I'm like, fellas, like, uh, if you ask some kids that play soccer, oh, what do you want? Oh, I want to play soccer. Or, for who? For Sean, why? I said, why do you want to play for Shamrock Rovers? Oh, you get paid well, and you get so. So they're already, you know, when you see a 10-year-old that already has a bad mentality already, he's like looking to make money playing soccer. And and they don't realize, you know, they don't realize not everybody's going to be Robbie Keane or Roy Keane. What are two daily non-negotiables? The one thing I do, I look at my diary because I've, I've been so busy in the last, since obviously with the book and everything else. And I do a lot of talks from skills and, you know, different things and, companies and stuff like that and and i'm always like because i was trying to work around my because i work shift work and i always trying to work around my my diary and i'm like oh, bollocks you never wrote that down I, you know sorry for cursing by the way for the audience yeah, yeah, but, great, um, so i don't i don't forget you know because sometimes there's things that was meant to be in the school one day and i forgot all about it and it was all planned and all and they're waiting for me and, then, and i was in work you know <laughs> And I was like, bollocks, his ass, his ass, I don't like it. Just look at me diary every day, you know. That would be the thing, diary. And then when I wake up, a cup of coffee. Brilliant, cup of coffee. Coffee has yeah. to be done. Look, we'll, we'll finish it up there, Zach. We have a huge amount covered. We did a huge amount. And thanks very much for taking time out to come on into the View podcast. And best look with everything going forward. All right, thanks for having me. And thank you again. And we'll chat again. That is all from us on this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Zach. Again, if you'd like to know more about Zach, be sure to check out the Sports and Doors website or check out the link in the show notes. We'd ask you to rate, review and tell your friends and family about the podcast. And also you do, click subscribe if you haven't done so already. It makes a huge difference and we'd really, really appreciate it. Be sure to follow us on social media as well. We're on all the social media platforms if you haven't done so already. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, create on a fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.